0: Thank you so much, Keith, and the rest of the team. This morning, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We made it to Ephesians chapter 2. As I was looking at the calendar not too many days ago, the thought occurred to me that last year, on this Sunday, Jorane and I were in London. And we, once again, want to thank you for the gracious gift that you gave us so we could spend some time away and enjoy our time in the United Kingdom and really have the time of our lives. So we had a chance to either see or visit uh, Buckingham Palace and Westminster Abbey. We floated the Thames River. Uh, One of the things I was thinking about is that we learned that we enjoy, sorry, Linda, we enjoy Thai food much more than British food. But... uh, It was a wonderful, wonderful time, and um, uh, one day hope to return once again. One of the things that was on at least my list of things to do outside of seeing these great sites was to go to the cemetery where John Bunyan was buried. And this is one of the the, the long list of things that, that we didn't actually get to do. I want to have you think this morning about tombstones, and some people wonder why I like to visit tombstones. And one of the reasons is that as you think about a a cemetery, you think about a tombstone, is they really tell a story, don't they? You look at a tombstone and you learn something uh, about the individual who died, uh, about when they were born, about when they died. Sometimes a tombstone will give some amount of detail about a, a specific person's life and For many years, I've enjoyed taking my my children to cemeteries, and we did this in LaGrange, and we've done it also here in Whatcom County, and Nathan, from time to time, when we go on a long bike ride, we'll stop at a a cemetery, one in particular, and and, uh, we'll take a break and we'll walk amongst the dead, and we'll look at the tombstones and make observations. One of the things that I've noticed about a tombstone is that there's something really final, isn't there, about a tombstone. Tombstones make us realize that the old adage that the man who dies with the most toys is one of the dumbest things that everyone came up with. It's just not true. I want to ask this morning, and this will actually be an assignment for the men and Iron men here in a few short days, and that is to, to challenge you to think about what will be etched on your tombstone. When you breathe your last and you're placed in the ground, what will be the words that will be etched on to your tombstone? Something that's even more intense is instead of looking into the the future, I want you to also do this. I want you to, to look in the past. And I want you to examine the words that were inscribed on all of your spiritual tombstones. For in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul takes a moment to to gaze into the rearview mirror. And he gives us a clue that what he's referring to is our previous spiritual condition. So there's no mistake this morning, what we're going to study in Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 3 concern all of you, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, what your previous spiritual condition was. And once again, Paul gives us this clue that he's referring to our previous spiritual condition when he uses words, several words, in the past tense. And so look with me, Will, and I invite you to stand as we read the opening words of Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Father, we acknowledge that this is your infallible, inerrant, authoritative word. God-inspired, written for the glory of God and for the benefit of the people of God. And, Lord, we acknowledge also that this is a sobering and a thought-provoking passage My prayer is twofold, God, that first you would encourage those who are in Christ to look at their previous spiritual condition and that it would lead to rejoicing, that it would lead to worship, that it would lead to deep gratitude. And for those who are not yet followers of Christ, that they would realize that all of what we see on this tombstone is true of the unbeliever right now, this very moment. And I pray that the the truth, that reality would cause them uh, to to turn from their sin, that you would do a sovereign work of grace in their hearts, that you would regenerate their stony hearts and give them the ability to believe so that they would be numbered as a Christ follower. God, I, I pray that your spirit would be our teacher, that your spirit would be our instructor, and that you would edify your people with these important words in the word of God. First, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You'll remember that in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul the Apostle unpacks the spiritual blessings which belong to every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've entitled the sermon today, My Spiritual Tombstone. And before we look forward to chapter 2, we want to take a look back at Ephesians chapter 1. We took 11 or 12 weeks to walk through Ephesians chapter 1 and learned that God chose us in eternity past. That He chose us to be holy and blameless in His sight. That He predestined us for adoption as sons through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We learn that our salvation is according to God's purpose, according to His glorious grace. That we have redemption through the agency of Christ's shed blood. That we have been forgiven all of our sins, past, present, and future, according to the riches of His glorious grace. We learned also that we have received an inheritance in Christ. That if you're a follower of Jesus, that you indeed have hope that you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. That is what is true of every follower of Christ right now. But it has not always been the case, has it? In Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 3, Paul describes what we're referring to is our spiritual Tombstones, And this morning, I want to, to take you through a journey through the cemetery and take time to gaze upon your spiritual tomb, tombstone before you were a Christian. And what we are about to discover, I believe, is one of the most concise and chilling descriptions of sin in the life of a person before you receive salvation. Exactly what is inscribed on that tombstone? What is my spiritual status apart from grace, apart from the gospel, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ? What we will see in just a moment is an absolutely hopeless portrait of the person without God and without grace. If you were here this morning and you were not a Christian... You are not yet a Christ follower. My, my heart for you, my, my, my passion for you, is that you will see your true condition apart from grace and that God by His Spirit would awaken you and that you would leave today a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this tombstone, I, I want to look what, at seven marks of the unconverted person. Before we look at the seven marks, I want to make a few initial observations. The first is that the seven marks that we will unearth here in just a moment are absolutely comprehensive. Each one of you who was born, and that includes all of you, if you're here, each one of you who were born are marked by each of these seven characteristics. Secondly, each of the seven characteristics that we will look at is written in the past tense, as I've already made reference to. If you're a Christian today, none of these things are true of you anymore. On the other hand, as I've already mentioned, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, each one of the seven characteristics or marks on these tombstones will describe you to a T. And so look. At the first mark in Ephesians chapter 2, it begins in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The first thing we recognize is that before we were Christians, we were spiritual zombies. That ought to wake someone up. Before you were a Christian, you were a spiritual zombie. And the reason I chose the word zombie in particular is this. You've all seen a movie or a show or read a book about a zombie. And one of the characteristics of a zombie is zombies are dead, aren't they? But there's something else we know about zombies. Zombies walk and usually with their arms out like this and their mouths open and they just walk around and they get people, right? The Bible says in clear and certain terms that each of us, before we received grace, that we were spiritual zombies. Look again at Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were, that's an important word, you were dead in trespasses, in sins. That is what is true of us before we were Christians. Colossians chapter 2 verse 13. It says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. John MacArthur adds this. He says, the wages of the payment for sin is death. And because man is born in sin, he is born to death. Man does not become spiritually dead because he sins. He is spiritually dead because by nature he is sinful. And that's an important distinction. If you look with me in verse 1, focus with me on the word dead. That's the emphasis I want to make. That's a, a word that comes from the Greek word nekros that means useless or ineffective or powerless. The word means unable to respond. And that's something you ought to mark and and make reference to in the days to come. That before you were a Christian, you were dead. That is, you are, are totally unable to respond to promptings of God. You are totally unable to respond to the free offer of the gospel. I'll never forget the time. I believe it was in 2006 or 2007. When I went to teach at the Bible College in Minsk, Belarus, and on the first weekend we were there, we had the opportunity to to board a train and and take an all-night train uh, uh, visit to the city of Moscow. And one of my dreams for many, many years, and even before the the fall of the Soviet Union, was to stand in Red Square with a New Testament in my hands and have someone take a picture of me. And guess what? I got to do it, and I didn't get arrested. It was great. It was right very close to this site. And so I'll never forget, when we went to the Kremlin... And if you're familiar with the Kremlin, it's a little hard to see with the the lights here. But on the right-hand side on the bottom is the mausoleum where Vladimir Lenin lies, resting. And so we got in line and we waited for about an hour so we could see the rotting corpse of Vladimir Lenin. And we got into the mausoleum, and I'll never forget, we we walked in, and it got dark all of a sudden. And my buddy and I, we were carrying on. We were so excited, and there was a Russian soldier who said, shh, like, whoa, wow. So we turned the corner, and it wasn't long before we looked on a glass casket. And in this casket was the body of Vladimir Lenin. And it struck me, he, he just looks like he's asleep. It, it truly looked like he was perfectly preserved, but he was asleep. And so if we would have been able to, which we weren't, we could have wrapped on the casket. Said, Vladimir, Vladimir, wake up, Mr. Lennon. It's time to go outside. It's time for lunch. Guess what? Crickets. Why is that? Well, anyone that knows anything about Lennon knows he's dead. He's been dead for many, many years. And that's a a portrait of our spiritual life. Before we receive grace, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. An example of what it means to be dead is found in John chapter 11. Jesus said, and I want to read this in the King James for maximum effect. Take ye away the stone... Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, because he's been dead for four days. Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Focus in for a second on the word trespasses and sins. Trespasses means false steps. We were dead in false steps. The word sins means to miss the mark. One writer says that sin is any lack of conformity to the law of God in act, habit, attitude, outlook, disposition, motivation, and mode of existence. Simply put, as the Westminster Larger larger Catechism says, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. We, before we receive grace, were spiritual zombies. I want to have you look with me for a moment at Christ Fellowship's doctrinal statement. The doctrinal statement that addresses this very issue, the doctrine of salvation. It says this, We believe that sin is any action or attitude that is contrary to the nature or word of God, which constitutes a rejection of his authority resulting in alienation from God. Sin entered the world when Adam, representing humanity, disobeyed God. As a result of the one sin of Adam, his descendants, the whole human race, are separated from relationship with God. Spiritually dead and therefore in a fallen state. Being sinners by nature and choice and utterly unable to remedy their lost condition, humanity is in need of salvation. Why? Because we are spiritual corpses apart from grace. Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith has a, a beautiful statement that the Westminster Divines Pan, instead of reading that statement in its entirety, I just want to read five very short statements that that emerge in the Westminster statement. They go like this: all people everywhere have fallen into sin. We have lost the ability to choose God. We lost the ability to do good to the glory of God. We are dead in sin. And finally, the Westminster Confession of Faith tells us we are unable in our own strength to convert ourselves. And you ask, why? The reason is because we are spiritual corpses apart from grace. I recently read a story about a man who worked at a mortuary. One night he walked into the chapel and he saw a, a very eerie sight. He saw an open casket at the front of the chapel with a dead body lying in it. This man walked up behind the casket until he could he could barely see the body. And all he saw was the tip of the nose that emerged from the casket. And he walked up to the casket. And he said, Boo! Guess what? Nothing. Why? Because he was gone. He was dead. We, apart from grace, are spiritual corpses. Dead men don't respond. Spiritual zombies are are free to do good or evil, but they're only able to do evil because of the radical nature of our sinful condition. Stephen Lawson says in this state, and he's referring to the spiritual zombie, unregenerate people are completely unresponsive to the things of God. Just as a corpse cannot see or hear or make choices, one who is spiritually dead cannot properly respond to the things of God. I've often dreamed about teaching young men to preach the word of God. If I ever have the chance, whether it's here or someplace else, to teach young men how to preach the word of God, I already have one of the assignments prepared in advance. Would you like to hear about it? I'm going to take a group of individuals. We're going to get a van or a a large vehicle or a bus. And we're going to drive to the cemetery. I'm going to start. And I'm going to say, Arlen, you're first. Preach a sermon. He's going to say something like, excuse me? I'm going to say, get your notes and get your Bible. We'll provide a lectern. And you can stand behind the lectern or the pulpit and preach the word of God. And guess what's going to happen? No response. Why? Because apart from grace, we are spiritual zombies. That's the first mark of the unconverted man. The second mark is that before God transformed my heart by his grace, I loved sin. And I have placed these seven marks in the first person specifically, not to refer to me and only me, but so that you would personalize them. And so you don't say your wife used to be a spiritual zombie. Please don't do that. That would not work well for you. Or my husband used to be a spiritual zombie. Or my friends or my relatives. This is, this is me. I, Dave Steele, used to be a spiritual zombie. The second thing I know is this. I loved sin. We look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says, in which you once walked following the course of the world. That word walked means to, to walk around or to live. It's a verb that describes your behavior or the habits in your life. It's a word that describes how we spend our time. It describes the affections of our hearts. Notice what Paul says we walked in. And you might have to do a little bit of detective work here. You say, what does he walk in? He continues and really doesn't say. Notice verse 1. We were dead in our our trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's what we walked in. You see, Paul is fond of using this term walked. It's throughout the pages of the New Testament. In Ephesians 4.17, he uses it also. He says, this is the day... Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And so you see, we were not only dead in our trespasses and sins, which rendered us incapable of drawing near to God. We walked in those trespasses and sins. One of the things my family has enjoyed for, for many years is is watching this crazy British guy, Linda Bear Grylls. This guy is just like the, the definition of cool, right? If uh, you're familiar with him, you, you may have seen this. I want to show you this video and, and make a few remarks.
1: Tiny desert springs bubble to the surface, but don't be fooled. This could be lethal quicksand, which has been known to swallow vehicles and people whole. Fall into this and you'd be in big trouble. I'm gonna show you how to get out of it alive. And what's nasty about this stuff is the more you fight it, the more it like pulls you in. And look, you suddenly realize it's not just this crust of sand that you thought, but actually it's all of that, clay, and water. And each time you pull it, try and pull your leg up, the suction just pulls it back in. That's why these things are so dangerous. And the reason these can actually kill people is not because they swallow you, it's because they just don't let you out of it. And the killer is that,
0: the sun. And over the monitor, what have you. I want you to see a graphic illustration with this video clip of what it means to walk in trespasses and sins. It's like you're, you're stuck in quicksand like Bear Grylls, and you sink deeper and deeper and deeper. And there's a few flaws in this metaphor. One is you can be pretty assured that he doesn't want to stay there. The sinner, apart from grace, is lost in trespasses and sins, dead in trespasses and sins. But you love it. You love living in sin. The other metaphor, the other part of the metaphor that doesn't work is, if you continue to watch the video, he will show you how to get out. Guess what? If you're a prisoner to sin, if you're dead in your trespasses and sins, you don't want out. The only way you get out is by the power of another. That is the power of God. And so walking in trespasses and sins is like being sucked into quicksand. And the only way you can get out is by the grace of God. There's a third mark of the unconverted person found in verse 2. And that is, I loved the world. Look again at verse 2. In which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the word world is something i want to focus on just for a moment it's it's the greek comes from the greek word cosmos and it refers not to the planet rather the world refers to the ungodly system that opposes god the ways of god and the word of god we learn this about the world in scripture That the world is at war with God. Have Have you learned that yet? The world is at war with God. The world is at war with the kingdom of God. We learn that the world opposes the rule of God. One of the things that young people learn really quickly if they decide to go to a public university is that... Many, if not most, of their professors are, are opposed to God and the Word of God, and they are totally unashamed to tell you that. In fact, some professors will tell you if you believe in six-day creationism, you are crazy. You've lost your mind. If you believe that that people are sinners, you are crazy. If you believe the Word of God, as Keith mentioned earlier, is the inerrant, infallible, authoritative, God-inspired Word of God, that's nuts. Crazy people believe that. Why would they say that? Because the world opposes the rule of God. The world opposes the righteousness of God. The world is simply marked by humanism and materialism and illicit sex. There's a writer by the name of William Ernest Henley who many years ago wrote a poem. Some of you have heard it. The name of the poem is Invictus. And it's a poem that I first encountered about 25 years ago, and its I'll never forget the way I felt when I read it. And every time I run across it, I feel the same way. See if you experience the same thing. He says, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the full clutch of the circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud under the bludgeoning of chance. My head is bloody, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror and the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the captain of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. You see, those words describe really the essence of, of a person who has been really trapped by the dictates of the world. And I should say that one of the most dangerous heresies you could ever believe is this, and it's it's a heresy that you'll find in pulpits all over the world. It's a heresy that describes what you can do for God instead of what God Can do for you. It's a heresy that says you can do it. You're the man, you're the woman, instead of describing the Lord Jesus Christ who left his glory to spend 33 years on this earth to live a life that we can never live and die a death that each one of us deserve to die. You see, the world has a way of seducing those who follow her ungodly ways. The world reels in the unsuspecting with endless media, pagan philosophy, man-centered ideologies, selfish pursuits, and even Christians find themselves entrapped by the ways of the world. But the passage teaches us this, every unconverted person absolutely loves the world. There's a fourth characteristic or a fourth mark, and that is I love the devil. You say, whoa, wait a minute. I love the devil. Are you serious? Well, if you believe the word of God, you must confess that before you were a Christian, you loved the devil. Look at it with me. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the son's Of disobedience. Paul refers to the devil as the the prince of the power of the air. This morning in our Veritas class, we learned several names for the devil Diabolos, he's the deceiver. Beelzebub, lord of the flies, he's the roaring lion. Some people will recoil, especially in American culture. They recoil against the notion of loving the devil. After all, aren't we good people? But Jesus knows better, doesn't he? Jesus knows the inner workings of the human heart. Jesus knows what the motivations of a person are like, a person who is yet to receive grace. Listen to how he, how he nails his listeners in John 8. He says, You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he lies, he speaks out his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Paul says that the devil is at work in this passage, in the sons of disobedience. The word work means that that he is constantly at work in the hearts and the minds of unconverted people. In this sense, you could say the devil is like the energizer bunny. He's working and working and working, constantly working in the lives of unconverted people. Here's what he does. He entices the hearts and the affections of the unconverted person. He energizes the flesh of the unconverted person. He confirms the lusts of the unconverted person, and he compels the unconverted person to stay on the, on the, on the broad path. Now, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that logic should, should automatically pop in your mind. A red flag should arise when the devil tells you, stay on the broad path. Stay on the the large path. Stay on the fun path. Automatically, you should think this verse, there is a way that seems right to a man. But in the end, it leads to death. One writer says this devil dominates and energizes the spiritually dead. But the most important thing to understand at this point is unconverted people love the devil. There's another quality that we see in verse 3. That is, before we received grace, we lived for ourselves. I lived for myself. Look at verse 3. Among whom we all, notice the past tense, once lived in the passions of the flesh. Paul uses another word here that describes our behavior. He uses the word lived. It's a word also that refers to our conduct. The conduct is consumed here by the passions of the flesh. Evil desire, evil craving, lust. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, you know exactly what I'm referring to. You say, yep, that's me. That's me. I love it. If you are a follower of the the Lord Jesus Christ, I guarantee you're saying this. I remember when I was like that. Yep, that describes me. By definition, these passions are worldly. We were led astray by these passions, Paul says. Jude refers to scoffers who follow their own ungodly passions. And some of these passions include things like anger, sexual immorality, idolatry, sorcery, jealousy, strife, dissension, and drunkenness, according to Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 21. Here's what is important to understand about these passions. These passions, according to Paul, control the hearts and the minds and the actions of unconverted people. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, once again, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Why? Because the Bible says you are a prisoner to your passions. Listen to Romans 8, 7 and 8. Which says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There's a sixth characteristic in this passage of an unconverted person, and that is that I longed after sinful pleasures. Once again, verse three carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. What does it look like? Ephesians 4.18 says, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And so what is the desire or the will of the unconverted person? There's a song that accurately describes it. It goes something like this, and I promise not to sing it for you. Although I want to. I'll do it my way. I'll do it my way. In this framework, there is no submission to God. There is no obedience to God. The person who is ensnared by his or her sinful passions never acknowledges God. God is not worshipped. His word is not heard. His plans are not followed. You see, there is no room for God in the heart of a person who carries out the desires of his body and mind. There's a final qualification, a final mark of the unconverted person that emerges in verse 3. And it's probably the worst of all. And that is that I lived under the wrath of God. Paul says that we were, notice again, past tense. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I have to tell you that in... 26 plus years of pastoral ministry, if I could tell you the conversations that I've had about the wrath of God, you would be shocked. I remember many, many years ago, 10 or 11 years ago, I went to a, a prayer retreat with a group of pastors in the community in Grand, And I brought two books. I, I brought my Bible and I brought a, a book of sermons by Jonathan Edwards. Surprise, surprise. The name of the book was The Almighty Wrath of God. And the first night I, I sat down on my bunk and one of the pastors came in from the community and he looked over and he saw that next to my Bible was that book by Edwards that said The Almighty Wrath of God and he, he scoffed at it. He said, Oh, you believe in that, huh? Wow, Unbelievable. And I said, I named him my name, and I handed it to him. I said, you, you should really check it out. It's, this is absolutely amazing and God-honoring. He said, "You get that away from me. I don't want to touch that. You see, that, that's par for the course in our culture, is even professing followers of Christ say, I want nothing to do with a god who is angry. I want nothing to do with a God who expresses wrath. Well, Paul says in Romans 2.8, for those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. That sounds like the wrath of God. Jesus describes this person in John 3.36. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And I, it sounds an awful lot like what we see in Ephesians 2, 3, that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, these are the seven marks in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 of the unconverted person. And I probably don't need to tell you, this is bad news. This is exceedingly bad news. But here is the good news. The good news is that Jesus Christ drank the cup of God's wrath for the sins of everyone who would ever believe. This is the wrath that i deserved this is the wrath that you deserved and so jesus hours before he went to the cross is in the the garden of gethsemane and he sweats drops of blood because he anticipates bearing the weight of my sin and your sin as well the good news also begins in ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 And it's what, in my humble estimation, is one of the most important words, and this will be a shock to you, in all of the New Testament. It's the word, but. The word, but. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with christ by grace we have been saved my friends these are the marks of this of the unconverted person these are the marks that were chiseled into your spiritual tombstone before you receive grace and the marks will remain there until god astounds you with his grace it was in The summer days of 1974, when I was a little kid, a little seven-year-old, when I heard the gospel, I heard it from my mom, I heard it from my dad, I heard it from my Sunday school teacher, Mrs. Hawkinson. And I came home on a Wednesday evening, and all on my own, I knew that apart from God... And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that if I died on that day, I would go straight to hell and I would bear the weight of all my sins for the rest of eternity. And I cried out, I cried out as a little boy, God, save me. Save me. I want to be your disciple. I want to be your child. My sins need to be forgiven. Will you forgive me of all my sins? You might wonder why Paul takes time to even explore our spiritual tombstone. And you might even say, man, verses 1 to 3, this is negative stuff. This is bad news. Why do we need to focus on the sinfulness of sin? Our spiritual tombstones remind us of some important realities that I want to close with. My spiritual tombstone reminds me of my previous position before God. Your spiritual tombstone reminds you of your previous position before God. It reveals the ugliness of our sin. It reveals the depth and the breadth of our sin. It reveals the, the, the unbridgeable Gap that exists between a holy God and a sinful person. It reveals the, hor- the horrible chasm that has come between a holy God and a sinful person. And it reveals my desperate need that can only be remedied by grace. You see, there, there are pulpits in the United States of America. And the main message in some of these pulpits is, these are the, the seven things you need to do to be effective. These are the things that you need to do. And the Bible says the exact opposite. The Bible says that Jesus climbed down and lived the life that we could never live. And then he died on that cross. And he took the hit. He took the the shame. He took the punishment. He bore the wrath that you and I deserved to bear. There's a second lesson that we learn as we gaze upon our spiritual tombstones in Ephesians 2. And that is that... My spiritual tombstone reminds me that I deserve to be judged eternally. Many of you already know what I'm thinking at this point. I go to a coffee shop and the young lady says, How you doing today, sir? Better than I deserve. Excuse me? What? I remember the time I responded with, I deserve 10,000 degrees of white hot wrath. It was an interesting conversation. Third, my spiritual tombstone reminds me of the beauty of grace. It reminds me of the beauty of God's grace and how he reached down and snatched me out of the jaws of the enemy. Snatched me out of hell. Snatched me from eternal punishment and made me his trophy for his glory. Fourth, my spiritual tombstone reminds me to be grateful for the grace That God has sovereignly given me. You see grace. Has a way of prompting thanksgiving. I gave a challenge the first week. Of January. January 1. To write down something every day. For the whole year that you're thankful for. If you haven't done it yet today. I'll give you a freebie. It goes like this. Thank you for saving. Thank you for saving me. And those aren't just trite words. That's just not a cliche. It's, I deserve to go. Where? I deserve to go to hell. I deserve to go to hell and so when I say thank you God for saving me, it's not a cliche, it's not a line, it's a biblical reality. And so my tombstone reminds me, hey Steele, it's time to have an attitude of gratitude. Do you remember what you used to be? For me, it was almost 40 years ago. And so I have to look in the rearview mirror and it takes sometimes a, a lot of imagination, it takes a lot, or does it? It comes back like that. I remember my previous condition, and you do as well. For some of you this morning, the word of God may have struck a chord with you. Instead of looking at your tombstone in the rearview window, or the rear view mirror, rather, you realize that the spiritual tombstone that I have set forth today from Ephesians 2 is not in the past, it is right now. Such a life is not blessed. Your life is miserable without God. Your life is miserable without Christ. One of the great preachers, Warren Wiersbe, says this, the unbeliever is not sick. He's dead. He does not need resuscitation. He needs resurrection. The greatest need of spiritual zombies is the grace of God which is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning at Veritas, I once again opened my Bible and showed the picture that I keep in my Bible of John Rogers, the first man who was martyred in 1555, February the 4th, under Mary Tudor. We know her now as Bloody Mary. Well, there were more martyrdoms to come. That was on Monday... February the 4th, 1555, on Friday, later in the week, another man was martyred by the name of John Hooper, and we learned about him in Veritas as well this morning. The third martyr also took place on that Friday, on February 9th, 1555, and I want to read a few lines Lines that were written by Roland Taylor, the third man to die for his Christian convictions under Mary Tudor. These were written only five days before he burned at the stake. He says this, I say to my wife and to my children, the Lord gave you unto me, the Lord has taken me from you, and you from me. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I believe that they are blessed which die in the Lord. God cares for sparrows and for the hairs of our heads. I have ever found him more faithful and favorable than any father or husband. Trust ye, therefore, in him by the means of our dear Savior Christ's merits. Believe, love, fear, and obey him. Pray to him, for he has promised to help. Count me not dead. For I shall certainly live and never die. I go before you and I shall follow after to our long home. I go to the rest of my children, Susan, George, Ellen, Robert, and Zachary. I have bequeathed you to the only omnipotent. And then he has a series of warnings. He says, "...beware of the sin against the Holy Ghost. Now, after such a light, open so plainly and simply, truly, thoroughly, and generally to all England. The Lord grant all men His good and Holy Spirit, increase of wisdom, contemning the the wicked world, hearty desire to be with God." In the heavenly company, through Jesus Christ, our only mediator, advocate, righteousness, life, sanctification, hope, amen, amen, pray, pray. Roland Taylor, departing hence, ensure hope. Without all doubting of eternal salvation, I thank God, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, my certain Savior. Amen. 5th of February, 1555. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom then shall I fear? God is he that justifieth. Who is he that can condemn? In thee, O Lord, I have trusted. Let me never be confounded. And they tied him to the pyre, and they lit the wood, and they burned Rowan Taylor at the stake. Do you hear the the sense of, of certainty in this man who knew that he would die the most painful death that anyone could ever anticipate? you hear the sense of of faith and also faithfulness that, that explodes off the page? My question is this. Do you have that same kind of certainty? Do you have that same kind of faith and faithfulness as you look into the future in your life? When you think of your spiritual tombstone... Are you looking at the rearview mirror and remembering what you used to be apart from grace? Or does that describe you today? Are those the marks of your life before God? Let's pray together. Father, it's a, a sobering, sobering passage that we have taken time to unpack and learn about. God, what it does for me is it reminds me once again of the the beauty and the depth and the profundity of grace and all that was accomplished when the Lord Jesus Christ died on a cross. And when you raised him from the the grave three days later, thank you for saving me. God, I pray for each Christ follower this morning that they would be filled with a holy gratitude. That they would be filled with, with awe as they contemplate the grace that you have given them. Father, for those here this morning who are not yet followers of Jesus, may, may you do a work of grace in their hearts. May you regenerate their hearts, giving them the ability to believe. I pray that you'd, you'd resurrect the, the person who is spiritually dead and that they would leave a, a new person this morning. God, give us proper perspective as we learn about these great truths in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.